This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Silvia Cassini about her new book, Giving Bodies Back to Data, Image Markers, Bricolage, and Reinvention in Magnetic Resonance Technology. This book is an examination of the bodily situated aspects of data visualization work, looking at visualization practices around the development of MRI technology. Our bodies are scanned, probed, imaged, sampled, and transformed into data by clinicians and technologists. In this book, Silvia Cassini reveals the affective relations and materiality that turn data into image and in doing so, gives bodies back to data. Opening the black box of MRI technology, Cassini examines the bodily situated aspects of visualization practices around the development of this technology. Reframing existing narrative, narratives of biomedical innovation, she emphasizes the important but often overlooked roles played by aesthetics, affectivity, and craft practice in medical visualization. Well, Sylvia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Galina, for having me here. Oh, it's really great to have you here today with us. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global global pandemic recently, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Actually, the pandemic did affect my work. I was in the writing up stages of my book, really the final stages, completing my Leverhulme Trust Research Fellowship and focusing on uh, writing up the final draft of the manuscript. Um, luckily, I had already completed the, the uh, field work that I needed to do for the book. Um, but like many other colleagues, I then had to rush to complete the book and then convert all my courses, my teaching for um, the online format. So and also to uh, like basically I, I had to fly back to Italy from the UK um, to look after my old parents. So, yes, it was a difficult time, but I, I feel lucky enough to have had my uh, vaccine uh, this July and uh, and then to to somehow, I think, feel that I was still part of a community. I think that was my main takeaway because I 
I did feel really part of a community. I'm talking about my colleagues and my students at the University of Aberdeen. Um, I felt that we were able to connect in spite of having all our meetings and teaching online. And I think that was really important to me. I, I actually never felt so close to them uh, before. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite strange to explain. Um, another thing that I think uh, is a good takeaway is that because of the pandemic, I had to slow down. So for the first time in years, I was able to actually focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> and that's something that I really do not want to forget. Yeah. So um, maybe another thing that I, I was able to do um, during the pandemic was to go back to something that I loved doing when I was a teenager, which is horse riding. <laughs> and so it was a little bit the excuse to, um, you know, to start again doing something that I used to like and I didn't have time to do anymore. So these are really the things that um, I, I think I, I, I was lucky. I didn't have uh, any any health-related problems and and I, my parents, um, luckily, also um, were fine in the end. So that's great. A couple of uh, sil silver linings of the situation there. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I know. And it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of strange because um, yeah, now we are about to commence uh, the semester, and everything is going to be. Um, in person and on campus again, mm. which is great. Uh, so I'm actually quite excited at the idea of flying back to Scotland and uh, commence my teaching on campus again after almost two years, really. So um, yeah, that's that's exciting, and uh, and I think you know it will be good to to be back. Uh, 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 in the office, to be back on campus, to be back in the classroom. I think that's uh, that's really uh, kind of nice, uh, and uh, and I very much look forward to it. So excellent. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I was born in Vittorio Veneto, which is a very small town in the northeast of Italy. Um, it's one hour from Venice, quite close to the Dolomite Mountains. Um, I um, did my first degree in philosophy at Caposco University in Venice. And uh, I think it's there that I somehow got interested in the mind-body and mind-brain dualism uh, in a very kind of theoretical and rather abstract manner. Um, and, uh, and, and then I, um, I had a strange and not really linear academic pathway because I, um, I didn't start my PhD immediately after my first degree. I first worked in the, film, in the field of film and, and television production. Um, and I worked for the Venice Film Festival, um, the Biennale. Um, and it was while I was working for uh, this film and television production that I, um, I designed a, a, the plan, the project for a documentary on a, a, a research institution, on a neuroscientific uh, research center. 
And it is there that I actually learned a little bit more about biomedical imaging technologies um, like magnetic resonance imaging. And I realized that they were used to produce pictures of the body and of the brain's activity. And I also noticed um, that those pictures were increasingly uh, present in mass media. And they were often used to make claims about, um, you know, cognition, about ourselves, about who we are. So I think that somehow uh, this is how I realized that it was important for me to actually learn more about visual culture and science and technology studies and to tackle that question of, you know, the relationship between mind and brain in a, a more concrete manner. So I decided to undertake a PhD in visual culture in the UK. I was lucky enough to be given a, a studentship from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and uh, and I worked on um, on really uh, on magnetic on magnetic resonance imaging. Um, it was a practice-based PhD, so part of it was uh, the curatorship of an exhibition of an art exhibition. Um, and it is during my PhD uh, that I came across the work of a French sculptor called Marc Didoux. And I um, curated the first solo exhibition of Marc Didoux in the UK as part of my PhD. So that was uh, um, the first uh, really way in which I tried to um, establish a dialogue between art and science in my in my own research um, then i i left actually the uk and went back to italy but maybe this is another story this is something that we can maybe talk about uh, in in a bit so this is so interesting so your field is called medical humanities is that correct Yes, I would say that my work sits across visual culture of science, the medical humanities, and science studies. So I kind of move uh, across these fields. And, and, often, and I'm also interested in art and science collaborations. Um, so my approach to uh, art and science collaborations is uh, uh, through data visualization. And this is really uh, the topic of, uh, of my book, uh, Giving Bodies Back to Data. I wanted so, to ask about yeah. uh, the community and the mentors that you had along the way. But I'm also interested, how are you able to reconcile those two big fields and professionals in either of them that might not have had um, much exposure to the to the field of, or to another field so science and arts yeah so um well um after i undertook my phd i um i got the chance of um working for a research center called observa science in society um uh, located in uh, vicenza uh, in the northeast of italy and it is there that i learned a lot about uh, uh, public engagement with science also through the arts um, and i learned a lot also about qualitative methods for engaging um with science uh, in the making, so to say, with science practice, with science at, as it unfolds uh, within the laboratory. Um, and so, and then I started my own, um, my own startup company, a very small company, and I curated a year-long series of um, dialogue and 
um, pop-up events and exhibitions on the relationship between art and science. I think the main uh, thing is to try to avoid a, a very generic discussion on art and science and try mm. to focus on, for instance, one technology that is used by artists, um, like biomedical imaging or any other technology or, um, I don't know, or uh, bacteria nowadays in, in bio art, etc. And I think what I've always tried to do in my work so far is to avoid bridging the gap between artists and scientists, but rather I try to open the gap and to inhabit the gap, so to say. I think we shouldn't be afraid of um, of really leaving this space open uh, because art and science use very different languages. They have different methods, but this doesn't mean that uh, we cannot find a sort of uh, what I call in the book uh, a trading zone. Uh, so a, a kind of a common ground that can serve as a, a springboard for a dialogue and perhaps even for a collaboration. So that's my, my take. But really giving bodies back to data, I think really does try to to show that it's possible to um, to embrace also the difference between uh, um, uh, art and science and still open a dialogue and respect that difference, but still somehow try to uh, collaborate together and to, um, to um, if you want to, um, in a way to, um, oh, I, I'm lost now, um, to, uh, to explore one another methods and to to uh, try to tackle some of the big issues and questions that sometimes scientists do not have the time to actually address mm. because they tend to work in silos. So I think that's what artists can bring into the picture. Sometimes artists can really uh, help scientists uh, to um, to get a sense of the wider historical, cultural, and social um, uh, background and context for uh, the research that they are doing, for the implications of the technologies that they are using, etc. So I think that's part of what, uh, what also um, art can bring into the picture. Yes, for sure. The fresh perspective from yes, the outside, especially. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, the, there is actually a very beautiful marriage of the science and art in uh, your latest book, uh, Giving body, Bodies Back to Data. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yeah, um, I think it's somehow I... I, I... Um, I did come to write it because, again, I was interested in tackling this um, this question of uh, how uh, biomedical imaging technologies and the pictures that um, are created with them are uh, entering uh, our uh, public imagination and how they are used to um, 
make claims about who we are, about uh, um, ourselves, uh, about uh, uh, our subjectivities. And I was interested in uh, understanding um, a bit better how these images are created inside the laboratory, because very often when these images are presented in the mass media, they are presented as if they were photographic snapshots. Um, and this is obviously wrong. Uh, so I was interested in really studying what, uh, how it, those images are created and what happens when they migrate to the wider um, public arena. What happens when they enter um, public imaginaries? And, and I think artists, uh, is, um, artists are really um, able to... Uh, to uh, work around and with metaphors and, and models uh, that bring these public uh, uh, imaginaries back to life. So I was really um, interested in uh, focusing on one technology in particular, um, because again, I believe that one has to be very specific and maybe devote attention to uh, a micro history uh, of a technology, for instance. And magnetic resonance imaging is a very interesting technology because uh, I think it's, uh, it's, well, it's widely used, um, almost not everyone, but at least uh, those of us who live uh, in the Western world and who are lucky enough to, uh, to um, be able to, um, to use these very expensive uh, technologies might have had the experience of undergoing a scan, uh, for instance, with MRI. So um, they are, they, they've, magnetic resonance imaging has become part of our uh, public imagination, pretty much like X-rays back uh, in you know in the 1895 when they were first discovered so okay so let's start with the science part so what yep. exactly is mri technology and how does it work yeah so um mri is a non-invasive technique that uses strong magnetic fields radio waves and also field gradients and it's used to visualize the anatomy, also the physiological processes of the body, both in health and disease. Um, I can go into details on how the, uh, the procedure actually works. Um, so the patient is, um, lies inside a tube-shaped magnet and is exposed to a very strong magnetic field. So magnetic uh, resonance technology is based on the principle that the atomic nuclei absorb external radio frequency waves, and then re-emit them in a magnetic environment. Our uh, bodies contain uh, um, hydrogen atoms, which usually spin in random directions. But within the inside the MRI scanner, these atoms become temporally aligned with the, dire with the direction of the applied magnetic field. Um, and a radio frequency pulse is then applied, which excites the atoms and forces them out of this equilibrium state. Um, when the pulse ends, the atoms realign with the magnetic field, and this, uh, the time that it takes the atoms to realign is called relaxation time. And, uh, and it is during this relaxation time 
that the atoms emit the signals or emit signals that can be analyzed by the scanner and uh, and that they can also uh, be collected by the scanner um, and these signals came from come from normal or diseased tissues so the scanner then um, uses these signals to create cross-sectional images of uh, the body's uh, tissues and organs. So this is how it works. I know that it sounds quite complicated, but it is mm. a very complicated procedure that requires a lot of different expertise and professionals. So it's not uh, a simple technology. Yeah, that's a really, a really good point. Uh, it is quite expensive. And I suppose that just because uh, you're laying in the big magnet, you also don't uh, cannot have anything metal on you or inside of you, isn't it? Uh, like implants. Exactly. Exactly. That's a very good point. In fact, this is quite a challenge for, well, for artists as well who are willing to mm. use this technology because they, you cannot put uh, a camera inside and record, for instance, the experience of undergoing a scan. You have to find other ways of uh, turning, for instance, that experience into something that can be communicated to others or that can be turned into a work of art. And I'm talking about the experience of being inside a scanner because this is very often the first step that artists undertook in order to, um, to work with this technology. And it's a way of, if you want, I think this is a point that I'm making in the book, uh, uh, Giving Bodies Back to Data. It's a way of opening up the black box of this technology, which is so complicated. So uh, a very good entry point into the, the technology is actually undergoing um, a scan, um, for instance, mm -hmm. as uh, volunteering as an experimental subject. This obviously opens up also um, some, uh, um, you know, issues because clearly this is a medical technology. And uh, so the, the, the kind of main thing is that it is a technology that is used by um, several patients who then might find out about a condition of illness. Um, so uh, this is uh, clearly something that... Um, might uh, bring up also some uh, ethical uh, considerations um, whenever artists uh, engage with this technology. It's quite interesting that there are many uh, female artists who have been using this technology after they had to also undergo an MRI scan for, um, for clinical reasons. So, and then they decided to repeat the experience um, in order to um, somehow uh, better understand the, the experience of being inside the scanner, but also in order to um, uh, reflect back uh, on, 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 the, on, the whole, uh, on the whole experience. Yeah, for sure. It op opens up new discussions around uh, these medical technologies in general. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So how was MRI developed? How it was in the very early days? Yeah, uh, well, um, let me say that like many other scientific breakthroughs and discoveries, the development of MRI is really not linear <laughs> in the sense that it uh, involved different research laboratories and teams across the world, mainly North America, Europe and Asia. Um, so 
if you want, the history of MRI can be visualized as a sort of map with multiple centers across continents and multiple temporalities. Um, there were many different steps that led to the scientific, technological, and then uh, diagnostic breakthrough um, of MRI. Uh, and to some extent, in the book, I, I do offer, uh, you know, the kind of key milestones of this history. But I also um, make sure that to say that it's not important to single out an inventor, for instance, the first one to discover who discovered the principle of magnetism or uh, the first image ever obtained, uh, the first clinical application, because this gives us somehow the illusion of a linearity in a history that is, again, not linear at all, mm. in a history that is still quite controversial. Um, obviously, we can recall the, the, the kind of... Uh, uh, the uh, experiments conducted by Felix Bloch and Edward Mills Purchell back in the 1940s, and then the work of uh, Paul Lauterbohr in the US and Raymond Damadian in the 70s. Um, well, Paul Lauterbohr, of course, is someone um, uh, who uh, we should uh, remember um, because it is really thanks to him that um, that uh, MRI eventually got uh, um, a, a, um, a visual uh, output. He was um, he was uh, already known for his studies in the field of chemistry. He was aware of Damadian's uh, studies um, on uh, um, on the relaxation times in uh, normal and diseased tissues. And he, um, he somehow uh, realized that a picture could be obtained with MRI. Um, it's also interesting to kind of notice that MRI, the name itself for the technology changed across history. It was called zeogmatography during Lotobo's time, and then it became nuclear magnetic resonance and then magnetic resonance imaging. So um, the, the history of MRI was not visual initially. Uh, the attempt to produce a visual output was really something that came out of the will to transform this technology into the diagnostic tool. Mm. Um, a, a sort of transition from physics and chemistry to medicine. But this process took almost 20 years. And uh, I, I have to say that historical details are still somewhat a, a matter of debate. Um, Obviously, I, I got interested in the uh, role played by the University of Aberdeen, uh, by the biomedical uh, physics uh, department of the uh, University of Aberdeen, because they played a, a huge role in uh, in the in in, in uh, turning the technology of MRI into a, a clinically useful technology. They invented, uh, Hutchison and Edelstein, these two physicists, invented the so-called spin warp method, which is the method that enables the transformation of data into a picture that can be read by radiologists and clinicians, which means a picture that is diagnostic, that, that has diagnostic value, that can be understood. Um, so that was uh, uh, made really in the early 1980s. 
And I got interested in this particular, in this micro history of this laboratory, because it has somewhat been uh, considered peripheral within the broader history of MRI invention and development. The attention seemed to always be on who won the Nobel Prize or mm. who who discovered that you know uh, the principle behind the technique or who led the first invention of the technique but i think it's also important for innovation to focus on the development of a technology for instance on how you know a technology has become uh, uh, um, you know converted developed into useful uh, clinical tool as you rightfully point out, it's a very big collaborative effort, not just uh, one person who did it. It's just a collection of uh, professionals and uh, technicians coming together. Yeah, and it, uh, it's also, yes, as you said, it's, uh, it's not just physicists, but uh, it was about uh, biologists, mm. radiologists, clinicians, engineers. And the, the Aberdonian side of, the, of this uh, broader history is quite interesting because they are actually a research group that has always built in-house every single component of these uh, very complex technologies. Uh, there's still uh, um, the scanner, the first uh, uh, clinically useful uh, scanner called Mark I. Uh, Mark I is currently on display in an art gallery inside uh, the hospital um, uh, on the biomedical campus at Aberdeen University. So it's quite interesting because it kind of functions as this technology, this uh, uh, one of the first scanners works as a sort of uh, boundary object between different communities, the communities of physicists, uh, artists, and also the community of patients. So uh, I think it's quite important sometimes with this very complex and complicated technology to start not from the software uh, to, in mm. order to understand them, but from the hardware. Um, so starting, for instance, with uh, with the scanner, which uh, Mark One obviously doesn't look like the the kind of this, the, an MRI scanner nowadays. Uh, it's not uh, polished and white. Everything is open to uh, the eyes of the onlookers, so you can actually see the inner workings of the machine. It's like seeing the really the the heart of the machine. Um, so I, I think that's quite uh, that's quite uh, interesting, um, and uh, and again uh, I I was lucky enough because I could access uh, the laboratory, I could spend time with the physicists, I could interview some of the um, professionals who were involved in the first development of MRI technology. I think another thing that is quite important to say about MRI and the reason why I also got interested in this technology is that MRI keeps being reinvented. One has the feeling that its uh, development is not over yet. Uh, there are different research teams across the world um, at the University of Aberdeen included that are working on uh, building new scanners, on improving the technology, uh, etc. And it is also reinvented by artists. So it has uh, an afterlife, uh, like many other technologies. Um, it kind of lives also in uh, the works of art that are created by artists. 
That's a beautiful concept. The MRI looks deep into the human body, and then you can look deep into the uh, inner workings of MRI machine. So it's uh, like yeah. a meta. <laughs> That's a, that's an interesting point, yes, and 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 I think this is really um, kind of key um, to also to uh, to any good art and science collaboration. And when I say good, uh, I mean a collaboration that brings something to uh, the scientist and to the artist involved. A collaboration that is not just about uh, uh, making science uh, sexy or, uh, you know, uh, communicating science to the wider public. Um, and that's the challenge, really. So my plan uh, and my purpose with giving bodies back to data was also not to really offer a series of do's and don'ts um, to anyone who is interested in setting up a, an art science collaborative project, but rather to offer a bottom-up uh, 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 project, the example of a bottom-up project that I uh, set up uh, uh, in the biomedical physics department at the University of Aberdeen in collaboration with uh, the artist Beverly Hood. And I kind of, I spent quite a long time to discuss the details of this collaboration and also the, the, the kind of misunderstanding things that did not quite work out or things that we um, thought we would do at the beginning and then uh, we didn't manage to do. Um, I think it's important also to kind of talk about failures uh, and mm. talk about uh, uh, the kind of, uh, also the, the kind of night dimension of science uh, to, uh, to use the words of uh, Francois Jacob. So this dimension of science that really is about the everyday struggle, the really labor of scientists uh, at the laboratory bench. So the book really tries to follow step by step uh, um, uh, scientists as they uh, work and struggle in order to develop a technology or uh, uh, the, the bits and pieces of a, a complex technology, both at the level of hardware and at the level of software. So, of course, MRI has really revolutionized the uh, medical field and the ability to really look deep into the human body to discover if there's something wrong or if everything is, is right. <laughs> so if we now look uh, more towards uh, society and reflect on this merging of art and science, so how this ability to delve deep into the human is actually combined with art? Yeah, I think this is a big question and I think we should go back to the idea that documenting the experience of undergoing a scan is very difficult to do through uh, film or through photography uh, for the reason that we explained. Um, I think uh, I think art practices ultimately are about uh, the attempt to engage with um, biomedicine overall, for instance, through um, magnetic resonance imaging, by playing with the idea of bringing the body back into the picture. Because the body of the patient is usually dissolved, metaphorically, obviously, into bits and pieces of data that are processed by algorithms and then turned into information. This is what mm -hmm. data visualization is about. So I think that artists are trying to um, really uh, 
put the body back into the picture. And the body is not only the body of the patient, but it's the body of the scientist, the body of the artist, the, the body, all these bodies in a, a connection with the technology itself. So it's a, it's a, a, a network um, more than the individual body. Um, and, and I think this brings up really the question of how we are used to, uh, how we experience the kind of the, the relationship with also doctors nowadays in the sense that we are used to look at biomedical images of our inner bodily structures, of our brain functions. Uh, but the medical image very often means the absence of the body, of the patient's body. So this is why artist practices are so important because they bring back this kind of um, holistic and also very material dimension that is sometimes lost in, in I think, in nowadays, uh, in, the, in the patient uh, and, and doctor relationship nowadays. Um, I also um, I also would like to add that um, the the book itself is really about how artists can give a context back to to these data and how they enable um, a, a physicist and scientist to highlight and to become aware of the neglected dimensions of data the fact that data are always the product of bodily work of decision making of even effective investment uh, that and all these dimensions the, the dimensions of aesthetics of uh, craftsmanship uh, of affectivity are already present in the laboratory so in some sense there's a, already a lot of art going on inside the laboratory in the everyday work of uh, of any scientist and i think bringing up this dimension uh, is is important yes for sure that's an excellent uh, point that uh, scientists also will learn quite a lot from this both from the perspective shifting uh, point but also just being a little bit more attuned to what exactly is in front of them as you described it's not like taking a picture taking a photo isn't it in the mri Exactly. And I think, you know, uh, it's it's uh, like the idea of using one's own body uh, can also be thought as a sort of form of resistance. It's somehow a pushback mm. against this idea that, you know, um, 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 we live into this kind of algorithm driven um, uh, world. Uh, so I think it's about making more making closer to us, to humans, uh, concepts that are uh, very also difficult to grasp for anyone who doesn't have a, an expertise in that specific scientific field. Um, so the situation, even the situation of restraint, of being still, having to, be, to stay still inside a scanner, becomes really a, a sign of creative potentiality. It's, uh, it's really the, 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 the starting point from which imagination can take over. And, and this, I think, brings the question of what the body can actually do. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's really what artists can also contribute to. 
Um, obviously, then the question arises of whose body is brought back into the picture. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, it's, also, um, uh, it's also important to, um, to kind of uh, remember uh, that these technologies, again, are very expensive. They are mainly used in the Western world. So it's also very important that there are some research centers um, that are actually um, uh, striving to develop uh, low-cost MRI scanners. And this is the case, for instance, of the biomedical physics department at the University of Aberdeen. They are currently trying to, uh, working actually, not trying, working on the development of a new type of MRI called fast field cycling. Um, mm. which works functions at low fields. So it has pot the, the potential of um, costing much less, which might open up the possibility of having MRI scanners in, in those parts of the world that currently cannot afford to have an MRI scanner. This issue of staying still in MRI is actually very interesting to me. And as we know, it's hard to take... Uh, uh, MRI scan of uh, children or of animals who have very hard time staying still. And I can even imagine that artists with their creativity and uh, their outside perspective, perhaps they can even come up with the strategies on how to achieve that, for example. So I can really see sort of practical even potential in this collaboration between artists and uh, scientists. Yeah, I think also the, the uh, once you are still inside the scanner, all because of this uh, situation of constraint, um, all your senses are actually um, very much alerted. So, for mm. instance, you uh, you kind of tend to pay a lot of attention to the sound, even when you are given earplugs, because the the, the the kind of noise produced by an MRI scanner can be uh, quite uh, strong and uh, and it's interesting because some artists actually discuss uh, the fact that they started to even hallucinate after being in the MRI scanner for a while and being exposed to this kind of rhythm of, uh, of MRI. So um, a few artists are interested in working um, around uh, the sonification of data, not just the uh, visualization of data, which is uh, also a very interesting field. And in the book, uh, I, I actually give uh, quite a lot of space to uh, the discussion of um, the, the role played by noise. Um, uh, noise, which in in, in physics uh, is very often uh, related to uh, everything that disturbs the final visual output, the final image, the final picture that somehow uh, tampers the quality of uh, of the final um, visualization of the final data visualization. And for artists, the uh, the noise is actually uh, what is interesting what they work with what they play around so um uh, i remember um i also remember going back to the idea of the experience of being still inside the scanner i do remember that a uh, the sculpture mark they do uh, uh, was talking about uh, his uh, his actually attempt to let the machine 
starting the sculpture, so to resist this cliché of the artist, of the sculpture, as being the creator of mm. the work, uh, which I thought that was really interesting. Um, again, uh, uh, it's almost like, uh, yeah, being in a, in a, in a womb, uh, disconnected, uh, to some extent, uh, from uh, from the outside. Although obviously you are always uh, uh, actually connected to the radiologist, you can uh, uh, always communicate uh, uh, with anyone with you know the radiologist who is inside the the console room. So you're never exactly uh, obviously alone, left alone. So you have undertaken an MRI scan yourself, have you? Yes, I did. Um, I did, and uh, and again, that was uh, um, a very useful way to, uh, well, first of all, to uh, get some MRI images because one of the biggest issues is actually to have access to those mm. images if you're not a patient and and if you're not also an artist uh, willing to to collaborate with a scientist. So. The main problem for me was really to to get access to to the images and to try to understand a little bit more uh, the, the the working of the technology at least and and the experience of undergoing a scan. So that was really the starting point. Um, another thing, obviously, was uh, that was really crucial also to the writing of giving bodies back to data was spending um, quite a lot of time inside the laboratory with with you know physicists, with the biologists, with the radiologists. So taking the time to look, to observe, to ask, being patient, uh, um, and and you know uh, trying really to. Um, to observe scientists uh, uh, as they were working in their everyday activities. Uh, I think this helps also to bring in this kind of holistic dimension that also artists are uh, able to to bring in. And this is a a dimension that is always neglected in the final uh, published uh, articles. So whenever scientists publish an article in academic and peer-reviewed uh, journals, they, they, they don't have the time and the space to actually engage with, with uh, sometimes the bigger picture and also with the, with, you know, the step-by-step um, uh, um, phases uh, that, that uh, are crucial to the development of a technology, um, to, uh, to the mistakes that are made, that, you know that that happened to the things that that go wrong, or to the kind mm. of uh, different uh, trajectories that sometimes a research project um, um, can undertake, but then uh, uh, that that doesn't have a follow up. So, in your book, you mentioned the term laboratory ethnography. So, what does it mean? So laboratory ethnography is um, a a qualitative methodology that means spending time as an embedded researcher inside a laboratory um, observing um, everyday activities of a lab. Um, Obviously, you can, you, you know, the researcher can decide to focus on a very small segment of, uh, you know, scientific activity 
on, on, a, on one phase uh, in the development, for instance, of a new technology. But laboratory ethnography entails the idea of observing and then taking down notes and also conducting interviews, interviews to uh, um, the scientists, to the professionals um, who are uh, involved firsthand in the development of, of, of uh, of um, you know a, a new research project, a new technology, etc., and I think it's a it's a method that comes obviously from the social sciences, but it's increasingly popular also um, among artists uh, um, because it's actually the only way in which you can uh, better understand uh, um, a technology. You can better. Uh, grasp the dimension of noise that I was talking about before. So mm. all these things that are neglected in uh, in the kind of uh, polished final uh, articles that are published. And I think it's an interesting method because I realized that it helps scientists too to become slightly more aware um, of, again, the wider social-cultural implications of a technology, for instance, um, and also to become more aware of the history of a specific technology or the history of their own uh, laboratory. Um, uh, and, and this is so important because, again, too often scientists work in silos, particularly young scientists. So they, they tend to sometimes miss the bigger picture. So I think when you share with them the results of a laboratory ethnography research, it's quite exciting to see that they, uh, they, they appreciate that and that they, they, they become, again, more aware of why they are doing what they are doing and uh, and whether there are other possible alternatives uh, and the, and they become more aware of the potential wider implications uh, of what they are doing and they become aware of uh, why what they are doing is so interesting um, to the wider public as well so by being inside the laboratory you become a, a, somehow a, a a connecting tissue, a bridge between the community of physicists and the the, the lay public. Oh, I love it. Uh, really studying scientists. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking about uh, the, these wider implications, as you mentioned, so in your view, what uh, this merging of technology and arts, how can it benefit in more of a wider society? I think, uh, well, I think I would say that um, it's, it enables, uh, I think it, it enables both scientists and artists to, uh, to become or to remain a humanist. Mm. Um, and I think this is so important because we live in a very um, technologically dense world uh, and the world of biomedicine is like that. So I think these collaborations are uh, enable uh, really to interrogate all the models, the metaphors, the, the histories that are used, that are at work in, for instance, in biomedicine or neuroscience, and, and really better understand uh, um, 
the the the, the wider implications and better understand uh, um, the, uh, the 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 kind of uh, um, really the, the wider implications of these technologies for for society at large. Um, and hopefully inspire others to also either go into art or into medicine, isn't it? Yeah, obviously, I think that's a very important um, reason why um, these collaborations are, are important, because I think one of the problems of our current uh, educational system, particularly in certain countries, is the fact that it's very, very much organized uh, um you know uh, uh, in terms of um you know uh being discipline specific so you 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 tend to be given the opportunity to go into depth into uh, a few subjects but then maybe you are not given the chance of studying history at all uh, this happens mm. actually in the uk for instance uh, at high school level so i think uh, and I think in this sense, uh, if we want really to, to talk uh, about, uh, you know, um, also um, um, changing or reforming the curricula, um, it's important to, to start having, hosting those type of collaborative projects. The, the important thing is that they shouldn't be too much institutionalized. Uh, I think it's important that these collaborative projects arise from the bottom up, that they arise because there are um, individual scientists and artists who are who have an interest, who are passionate about those collaborative work, or who want to take the risk and and be engaged in in those collaborative projects. So, what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, giving bodies back to data, surprised you the most? I think. Um, this might sound quite, uh, um, um, you know, uh, uh, simplistic, but I was really uh, uh, moved by the generosity of the people that I encountered and that I work with. Um, I was um, I was moved by the willingness to. Um, to let the to, to open up the doors of the for instance of a laboratory to, to host me uh, to talk to me to take the time to um, answer my questions um, in more concrete terms I was very much struck by um, the uh, discovery of the archive the personal archive by one of the physicists who played a huge role in the development of mri technology in aberdeen uh, james hutchison who is one of the uh, two inventors with edelstein of the spin warp method that i mentioned before at some point while i was writing the book uh, i uh, had the opportunity of uh, interviewing uh, Margaret Hutchison, um, the biologist, who was part of the, the original um, uh, laboratory team and uh, was also the wife, um, who is the wife of Hutchison. And uh, she uh, lent uh, the, this personal archive to the special collections of the University of Aberdeen. And this archive is impressive because it contains um, so uh, many um, reflections that have to do with, with physics, but they have also to do with um, philosophy, religion, with language, with, uh, uh, with um, uh, mm, 
um, with um, uh, experiments. Uh, um, and I thought mm. that, and my hope is that this archive, this archival material that I um, I managed to also discuss in the book uh, can be uh, studied by by other scholars too. I think that's uh, that's my hope. So as you mentioned, you are from Italy and now you're working yeah. in the University of Aberdeen. So I just have to ask you. So what is your verdict on haggis? <laughs> I never <laughs> tried it, which uh, may, yeah, it's embarrassing, but I, I know I, I tried the vegetarian version. <laughs> so, um, uh, which I love the vegetarian version, but I know that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, bad on my, uh, bad on me, really. Uh, um, it's, it goes very well with beer, but I'm, a, you know, a fan of whiskey. So at least uh, this is uh, something that I, I did try and I did enjoy in uh, in relation to really uh, the Scottish cuisine and and uh, and food that's perfect that still counts as haggis perfect recommendation yes. <laughs> <laughs> well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project yeah um so i'm currently well currently i'm busy uh, preparing for the next uh, semester preparing for uh, teaching on campus but i'm also currently um looking ahead at um, my next uh, research leave which is going to commence in january and for my next project i'm hoping to work on a different topic which is uh, science film festivals and i'm hoping to carry out some uh, archival research um, uh, exploring the um, a, a, a scientific film festival that occurred at the University of Padua in Italy between the middle 1950s and the middle 1970s. So that's going to be my next project, science film festivals and the relationship between uh, the evolution of science film festivals across history by looking at a few case studies. And I think I found my first case study. Oh, that sounds super exciting. So Thank where can you. our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Well, you can find information about myself uh, just by um, Googling my name, Silvia Casini and the University of Aberdeen, the website of the university, my, uh, my uh, university uh, profile page. I, you can also find there my uh, social media accounts, for instance, Twitter. Um, and then I'm on academia.edu, on, uh, um, on, on Facebook. Uh, um, I don't have a website. Um, but you can find more about the book, uh, Giving Bodies Back to Data, on the website of the MIT Press. Um, at, it's uh, available in different uh, uh, bookstores across the world and obviously also in, on Amazon and other, um, and other venues. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been truly illuminating discussion. Thank you so much, Galina, and thank you uh, Rick, yeah, for, for your time and, uh, and for the opportunity of being here. Thank you so much.